0: Good morning. If you haven't turned in your copy of the scriptures to the letter of 2 Thessalonians, I'd encourage you to do that. As we begin, let's take a dangerous journey into the mind of Pastor Trey Ochen. Um, Title of my uh, sermon today is Hi-Ho, Hi-Ho. Can we play a little fill-in-the-blank? How does that go? Hi-Ho, Hi-Ho? Very good, very good. Work's not an uncommon thing in our uh, culture. Uh, This I could have chosen a few others, uh, maybe uh, some of you can still play fill in the blank with me. Take this job and, oh, that doesn't sound very crazy, crit- but you know it, you know it. She works hard for the money. My wife would have liked it if I did it, I think it's Dolly Parton, working nine. Oh, see, it's so easy. Greg goes to a lot of pastry games over there. I don't want to work, I just want to bang on the drums all day. Um, So, so many things. This has been a change, this hi-ho, hi-ho from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Perhaps you've seen the meme, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. Uh, Kind of tweaked there a little bit. Well, this whole idea of work, I want to say at the outset, though, although our minds and those songs are going to fill in the blanks here a little bit, for us and make this sermon feel about vocational career. I would be doing a disservice if I narrowed it just to that. Not everyone has an American job. The work that a stay-at-home mom or a homeschool mom or a ministry worker or a church volunteer, the work in the community, work is a valuable thing. And I just want you to hear from me at the beginning that when I say work, I'm trying to think of all of those things, and you will not hear me talk too overtly about work as a job, as a vocation, the way America has uh, uh, relegated it today. Our last names reveal quite a little bit about our family lineage. Labor Day, we have a national yearly holiday, a tribute to the contributions of American workers, to strength of America, to the prosperity of America. But long before that, the importance of work was enshrined in some of our last names. The pattern of naming in the English language began with single names, because when people lived together in small communities, the supply of names was large enough so that no name had to be repeated. Most first names are very old. Girls have been named Mary, and boys, John, you know, for many, many centuries. But as social groups grew, single names began popping up more often, and a system of distinguishing among people with the same first names had to be invented. Villagers began to add a bit of descriptive information to the given names, and that's how we got our last names, or what are called surnames. The word sir in the Latin means to go above and beyond, so a second name. Some of these surnames began as describing how a person's clothing, we didn't have the same kinds of wardrobes, Then that we do now, so perhaps uh, black or brown or white or red. Or maybe size, small, little, long fellow. How about geography? Churchill, Rivers, York. How do you think our street got its name? German Church Road. You know, there is a German church. Or Post Road took you to the Army Post. Uh, This is not uncommon. One who refused to consume alcohol might have picked up the name Drinkwater. A man of great strength, Armstrong. And a loyal friend, sorry to Jim Carrey, Truman, was along long before the Truman Show, true man. The largest category of surnames began as descriptions of the work people did. In telephone directories today, if they still existed, I suppose they're now digital, Smith, which means worker, is the most popular last name by a wide margin over the nearest competitors. And it's no wonder when you consider that the village smith who made and repaired all the objects as metals was probably the most important worker in the community. In a similar fashion, it's easy to trace the occupational origins of surnames such as Archer, Barber, Bowman, Brewer, Butler, Carpenter, Carver, Cook, Draper, Farmer, Fisher, Forester, Fowler, Gardener, Hunter, mason, miller, piper, potter, saddler, shepherd, shoemaker, skinner, tanner, tailor, weaver, and wheeler. We don't think about that anymore. It has become without meaning. A little bit of introduction about work. Well, what about work in the Bible? You think about work in the Bible? Well, let me tell you first and foremost God is a worker. You should be glad for that. God is a worker. How many times have you heard the expression, the works of God? Anyone heard that? God has worked in creation. God is working in providence. God is sustaining, judging. He continues his work in redemption. And not only is God the Father, a worker, but Jesus is a worker. He said in John chapter 9, verse 4, I must work the works of my Father. I must do the works of my Father. He said, the one who sent me, I must do his work. And in John 4, 34, he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Whatever it is that God does, Jesus does. And in fact, in John 5, 17, you remember this. Jesus said, my father is working and I am working. And the Jews of that day lost their minds and sought to stone him because they said he's making himself equal with God because he says he does the works that God does. Jesus also is a worker in creation. He's also a judge. Jesus accomplished the work of redemption for His Father and for us on the cross. It should be no surprise to us then that the Holy Spirit is also a worker. He was involved in creation, hovering over the waters. The Spirit inspired the work of the Scripture. He is actively involved in redemption through the ministries of washing, sealing, baptizing, sustaining. God is a tireless worker. God never sleeps or slumbers. And not only that, we are commanded to work in the Scripture. At many places in the Scripture, this is uh, instructed to us, Exodus chapter 20, verses 9 and 10, plainly tell us to work six days, and on the seventh day to do what? To rest. That's right. To rest. This is God's design. Think about it. The Bible is a book in many ways about work. It began with a gardener and a garden. Shortly after that, a couple of sons are named to be a farmer and a shepherd. Not long after that, there are cities constructing huge arcs, towers to heaven, and that's all in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Altars are built, temples are built, mines are excavated, wealth is accumulated, temples are rebuilt, um, walls are rebuilt. One writer put it this way, the teaching of the Old Testament on the subject of work could be generally summed up By saying that it is a necessary and God-appointed function of human life. A necessary and God-appointed function of human life. Because to labor is the common fate of all mankind, it is important that men should accept it without complaining and fulfill with cheerful obedience the intention of the Creator for our existence. So the basic assumption of the Bible and the biblical viewpoint is that work is a divinely ordained event for the life of man. And friends, that makes work dignified. A God-given thing. All right, well, let's move to... That's just a little bit of introduction here for you to get you warmed up. What about our text this morning and our subject? Now, you remember we're in the middle of a series, Hurdles to Faithfulness. Do you picture that? Melissa and I were laughing about that in... uh, uh, and in a morning where we uh, are visiting here in the office and just envisioning life. And I'm in the track and I'm getting ready to run. Some of you know I fell in my pool about a week and a half ago. I wouldn't be doing hurdles uh, right now. I'm a little wounded. But we're running the hurdle of suffering. We've got to make it over that or we're out of the race. Today we're talking about the hurdle of work. How could work be a hurdle? What would make work a hurdle. If it's a God-given, divinely instituted function, our text this morning says to us that idleness or laziness would be the opposite of that, and that is a hurdle. So this morning I'm going to frame this in the spirit of the text that the hurdle would be not to work. Laziness and idleness is not something we often give much attention to here on a Sunday morning, why does it matter? Is it really important if we are industrious? Does God really care if we are lazy? Here, Paul discusses the importance of not being lazy, not being idle, not being, uh, not not taking your toys and going home, as it were. And why is it so important that Christians, that believers, are people who live on purpose, industriously for the glory of God? Now, I was tempted to make this more of a topical sermon. And the more I thought about it, the more convinced I became that in America, that our biggest hurdle as it relates to work and the God-given command to work is that many people don't work or they are lazy. And that's what this sermon will be about. But I would like to say there are a few outtakes, bloopers, deleted scenes that did run through my mind a lot, and I think they're just worth mentioning before we begin in the text. Here are a few other warnings that hit the cutting room floor, but are very, very important. Number one, when work becomes an end in itself, it becomes idolatry. That is a big deal. We spend a lot of time on that just in the book of Ecclesiastes. When you reduce your life to who you are, when when you buy into the fact that if your name is Baker, that the reason you have value and meaning in life is because you bake, that your identity is tied up solely and primarily in your work, that's idolatry. You've lost meaning. When work becomes the primary purpose in life, when it becomes an end in and itself, and, and especially in America where we don't barter, they've, the government has produced these pretty green pieces of paper that we all pretend has value, and we trade them with one another because you don't need my work literally, and I don't need your work literally, but we have a means of exchange, Right? When your work becomes simply wrapped up in getting more of that, it becomes materialism, and that's wrong. That could have been a whole sermon. That is not what work is for, for you to just accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. And lastly, when work becomes the meaning of life, your identity in Christ is lost. These are hurdles that hard-working Christians must face and overcome in life. You might remember these words from Ecclesiastes chapter 2. What does a man get from all of his work and striving of heart with which he works beneath the sun? All his days are full of sorrow. His work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart doesn't rest. This is also vanity. There is nothing better for a person to see that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his work. And this is from the hand of God. For apart from God, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? God is a part of this. For you people who are in the other ditch, who are the hard-working, hard-charging, strong work ethic, remember, your work is not who you are. Your worth and your love and your respect in this life is from Christ and because of Christ. But today's text doesn't address those issues. And I don't have time to either. i probably spent a few more minutes on that than I should have. Let's dive into the text in front of us. We're going to see a warning, an example, and a correction. It's very, very simple, very, very straightforward. A warning, an example, and a correction. First, the warning. Paul strongly warns them. In the name, verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ... Stay away from those who are idle. Not a word we use very often, idle. Your car isn't idling when you put it in neutral. It just sits there. It's idling. You're not moving, you're inert. Stay away from those who are idle and disruptive and do not live according to the teaching that they received. Wow. That's a strong warning, isn't it? He he commands them in the name of the Lord Jesus. Why such a strong warning? Why such a command? Because if someone is lazy and doesn't actually put into practice what they've heard, then they end up being disruptive. Do you see the connection there? Idleness to disruptive. You might have heard this old phrase, Play fill in the blank again, idle hands are the devil's workshop. In a simple sense, it means that if you are not busy about doing good things, then it is easier to succumb to temptation to do bad things. We could all agree with that. And this, by the way, is the third time that Paul has addressed this issue of work. The third time in the two epistles to the church at Thessalonica. If you were to have sat down and read first and second thessalonians you would have seen that this is the third time he is saying stay away from cease fellowshipping with brothers who lead an unruly life what's he meaning by that stay away from well the greek word translated not in accord is very straightforward it could be rendered out of step out of sync disorderly so people who are not in step and the offense here that is out of order is laziness and for these people, it was very flagrant. Paul says it was not according to the tradition you received from us. And he's going back to what he himself had taught them. For example, back in the first letter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11, he writes, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you. So these are related. And he's saying here, you've got to follow the tradition. You go back to that tradition, meaning what he wrote in the first letter. And in the first letter, he goes back to something even previous that he commanded them. We have at least three mentions. Something's going on in this church. Where Paul writes, look, I'm telling you what I've already told you. Keep your distance from these people. Friends, this, this word actually, and in common and uh, in, in biblical theology, with other uh, New Testament epistles, it would be a call in effect for church discipline, to cease fellowship, stay away from. John MacArthur writes it this way: The verb "to stay away from, or to keep uh, away from" is used to rolling up your sails. The idea is to cease the operation, the fellowship, the involvement with lazy people who won't work. That's a sin. that's immoral. And while we do not exercise church discipline for any kind of simple sin, the greatest sin that escalates church discipline is the sin of unrepentance. Any time someone willfully, flagrantly will not repent, the greater sin is not the sin. Do you understand that? It is the obvious hard heart that will not turn from any sin. That's an unacceptable behavior. This is the warning. And Paul has pointed this out to this church on many occasions, it seems. Secondly, the example. The example. From verses 7 to 10, Paul uses himself. And he uses himself and reminds the Thessalonians of Paul's example. Verses 7 through 10. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, Paul says, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to you, to any of you. Now he goes on to just make a point. It was not because we don't have that right. The Bible is very plain. It speaks about paying Christian workers, that the laborer is worthy of his hire, that the elders who work well in preaching and teaching have the right of double honor. Paul said, we we have this right So he says to them, it's not because we don't have the right, but in this case, we wanted to give you an example of ourselves to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Paul certainly could have lived on the generosity of the Christians at Thessalonica. Paul's a little famous, isn't he? He could have ensured that he was treated as a celebrity apostle. But instead, he worked hard. Anyone know what Paul's vocation was? He was a leather maker. He was a tent maker. He would have worked with long needles. He would have been a weaver. He would have understood how to cut. Paul could have been treated as a a welcome guest. He could have been supported by the work and the church family at Thessalonica. But instead, Paul worked hard. He says he didn't even allow anyone to pay for his meal. He worked night and day so that he would not be a burden to anyone. And as he lived like this, he also gave them a saying in regard to remember. The one who is unwilling to work, he says, shall not eat. He did not want Christians to take advantage of other Christians. He said you must be willing to work. Sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? You better work or you're going to starve. It does sound a little harsh. But remember, we are talking here about people who can work, not those who truly cannot. There also seems to be a reminder that he had laid out this principle before. Look what he says. When we were with you, we used to give you this saying, this proverb. So this is something he kept saying to them. This again reflects on the fact that maybe they had a big problem with this, going back to all the way to this establishing of the church. They were caught up in being indifferent towards things, material things in the physical world. Because they, they, they thought, well, if Jesus is coming back, and we're in the end times, and he's coming back very soon, what could be the very easy conclusion there? What's the point? And that is not what the Apostle Paul taught them. This is not a new thought. If you read Proverbs chapter 6, you read about the field of the sluggard and how a little sleep, a little slumber, and a little folding of the hands and your poverty will come on you like an armed bandit. Proverbs also says like a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns on its bed. These these are not unthinkable thoughts. Paul at this point says, how many times do I have to tell you what I've been telling you, what I'm constantly telling you? If anyone's not willing to work, he shouldn't eat either. Paul summarized this way of thinking when he wrote to the Colossians. Whatever you do, work hard. As for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. Paul's example is commendable. It is a great example for us. And I love what he wrote to the Colossians and it is implied here. I can't tell you how many times I'm involved in supervising work. How about you? And the quality and industriousness of the work changes with the level of supervision and we're all guilty of that in various areas of life in very many different ways because we are so focused on one another that we lose sight of the true master whether you're a student a housewife a a, a boss a worker a pastor a volunteer Hear these words. Follow the example of the Lord uh, of Paul. Whatever you do, work hard. As for the Lord, not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now, I just want to ask this question rhetorically. How many of you, in the monotony and daily work of your life, like me, sometimes forget that in your work you are serving the Lord Christ and let me ask it another way how many of you think that if in those moments of monotony and drudgery and temptation to idleness, laziness or even just a negative attitude if you remembered I am serving the Lord Christ it would change your morale it would change your spirit it would change your perspective. This example could be crushing, but I don't want to deliver it that way. This example is inspiring. The love of Christ constrains us. Because of the great sacrifice of Christ on the cross for us, what would you not do for the Lord Christ? And so the love of God in us changes the way we work, and it's beautiful. And lastly, a correction. A correction. Verses 11 and 12. This is a word we don't use very often in America. And I was trying to come up with another word because it seems so parochial and a little pejorative. But it's the word in the Bible. And I don't have a better one. So we're going to live with it. The word busybody. (laughs) Busybody. (laughs) Those who are busybodies which is kind of funny because it seems like the opposite of idle, doesn't it? Idle means to be doing nothing, and then we have this word, busybody. (laughs) Like a busybody. But they are not opposites. The busybody is the result of the idleness. Not busy with work, but busy messing with other people's business. I'm sitting here, I'm getting myself in trouble here, but now I just thought of the common... um, American meme for that, and that's Karen. Oh, no? okay, bad. All right, stay on your manuscript. It, it, it fell flat. <laughs> Busy messing with other people's business, gossiping, causing problems. He says to these people, Settle down, earn the food you're going to eat. Listen to the word of the Lord, verses 11 and 12. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. Not busy at work, busy bodies. Now such person we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Someone who has too much time on their hands should probably work, find a job, earn a living. We had a conversation last night with teenagers about screen time. And in America, just how much discretionary recreation time we have. Some of us would do well to look at those phones and ask ourselves, just what are we doing? And Paul says, all of us, brothers and sisters, we are not to tire of doing what is good. Unity is a fragile thing. Unity is a fragile thing. It must be defended. And there are busybodies who have nothing better to do than just wander around and stir up trouble. People who don't have anything to do for themselves wind up sticking their faces into things that other people are trying to do, meddling, and Paul says this is unacceptable. It's the destruction of harmony. It's the destruction of fellowship. It's the destruction of unity. It's irritating. It gets in there. It produces hurts. Such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. You need a job to keep you out of other people's businesses. You need something to keep you out of other people's lives. You need something to keep you busy so that people can get a break work in quiet fashion now it's not part of the text but verse 13 as i read both sides of this was very very helpful to me and i think there's a helpful word in verse 13 if you have your scripture open and it says as for you brothers don't grow weary in doing good that's another instruction for you hard workers if you are a hard worker that's an instruction for you the implication is obvious it's very easy for hard workers to get sick and tired of the lazy. Hard workers are in danger of coming to a place in their lives where they become indifferent towards people who have real needs. I think that's why he says that. Don't grow weary in doing good. There are always going to be people who would work if they could, but they can't. They legitimately don't have the opportunity. They legitimately don't have the ability. There are always going to be people in need. There are going to be widows, orphans, sick. So do not grow weary in having to take care of the lazy ones to the point that you lose your compassion for those who really need help. Don't grow weary in doing good. Always be eager to do what is good, what is honorable. Don't give up on the folks who need you and that's not easy either. It's not easy either. I invite the praise team back to the platform. We have our final thoughts here. I'm fundamentally stunned as I turn to page seven in my notes, which is usually one page too many, and I see 11 and a half minutes on the clock there. This has never happened to me before in my life. (laughs) But I do have just a few final thoughts here. I want to make a little bit of a gospel connection to the message this morning, a couple of applications, and a conclusion. So what? How does all of this tie to our lives other than some of the obvious instructions? Well, the gospel has, in this case, a surprising companion, work justification by faith alone the gospel of grace and mercy leads to work and this is a serious and necessary combination as someone who is lazy must be warned about work i just think about the scripture friends when you work you expect to be paid a, a wage a salary a compensation The compensation of sin is death. And in our own lives, we sit under the curse of sin and what we earn for ourselves is separation from God. And if we try to work our way into fixing that, we only work for ourselves more death. The more we realize what Christ has done for us, the more we will want to do whatever he asks of us. Whoever you are, whatever your bank balance, wherever you work, whatever car you drive, listen to this, compared to most people on planet Earth, you and I are enormously wealthy. A grateful heart acknowledges that our Heavenly Father is the source from which all good and perfect gifts flow, that everything we have, both results of work and the duties of work, we are just stewards of this wealth, which is His wealth. He is the one who determines what and how much we will have. We will not get more by working more, by wanting more, but by handling well what He has already given us, And by trusting and believing that he knows if we truly need more to meet our needs, he'll provide more. Final thoughts. Work is a part of God's big picture. Our work today matters to God, both now and eternally. We all have unique skills, gifts, and talents. We are all called to unique roles. Our work does not create our identity in Christ The same way we are Christians before we are Americans. But our work is connected to Christ's work in this world. And it should be centered on loving God above all else and using our work to serve others. The two greatest commandments. Work is a gift from God that brings a rhythm between work and rest that's essential to life. Our need for rest and to cease from our work occasionally reminds us that we are not God and we must be humble before him. Remember what I said earlier about Jesus in John chapter 4, verse 34. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And he did that work. And that work took him to a betrayal, to a trial, to the cross. And on the cross, before he died, He said a word. It is finished. You ever finished a job? I mean, really, you ever finished a job, feel good about it? Yes. That feeling, whatever feeling you're feeling right now, pales and is absolutely incomparable to the statement of Jesus, I did the work. I did it. A triumphant victory, yes, on the cross, on our behalf, that then was validated by a death, a burial, a resurrection. And this work of God continues in redemption. And Paul wrote, and this continues, I am sure of this, we focus so much on our work, that he who began a good work in you will keep on performing it until the day he returns. It's beautiful. This whole idea of work. But this work of Christ on our behalf is the thing that delineates and separates and empowers and emboldens and motivates and brings meaning to our work, not our own efforts. We work in Christ. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, it's Christ who lives in me. In the life I live, I live by the power of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Father, help these words to go deep in our hearts and grow. In Jesus' name, amen.